0: Now we're gonna talk about intubating the severely acidotic patient. So you start the IV fluids, you start the potassium, and while they're running, the nurse calls you to the bedside. Why? Well, the patient is complaining of worsening shortness of breath, and now he's diaphoretic. Diaphoretic, anytime, anywhere, any patient, never good. That's always badness. And he looks terrible, he looks really bad. These are his vitals. Heart rate 145, his respiratory rate is still pretty terrible, blood pressure is kind of fine, oxygen is kind of fine, but he just doesn't look good. There's an important thing to note about these vital signs. If you were on in the hospital overnight and the nurse called you with the vital signs, the nurse called and said, yep, patient has worsening shortness of breath, and uh, I don't know, they're not looking good, and then you just looked at the vital signs on the computer and you said, well, Well, their respiratory rate's kind of the same as before. I mean, if anything, it's maybe a little bit better, but it's kind of the same. Often what happens to these patients is they're working super hard to breathe. But the first thing to go is not the respiratory rate. It's the tidal volume. Because they're tiring out. They're still trying to breathe at 40, 45. But they're getting tired. So they still breathe at 45. But now instead of rapid, deep breathing, it's rapid, shallow breathing. And that's another thing, never good. And the combination of diaphoresis and rapid, shallow breathing, really not good, okay? Patient doesn't look so good, so you check another ABG. This is what it looks like. Tell me about this ABG. What's happening here? Why did my pH drop? Is it the bicarb? Well, no. The bicarb's kind of the same. We haven't really made any headway, but it's not worse. But the pH got so much worse. It's the CO2, right? Now remember, before we said, our patient didn't truly have a respiratory acidosis on top of his metabolic acidosis. He didn't before. He had blown his CO2 down as far as he could. He was trying his best. But now, now we can say this patient has an acute metabolic acidosis as well as an acute respiratory acidosis. And this is important because note, I am saying this patient has a respiratory acidosis even though his CO2 is 39, which is a normal CO2. But this is why it's important to understand compensations. Because we're saying he has a concomitant respiratory acidosis not because of the absolute value of the CO2, but because it's higher than it should be. We're in trouble. This is exactly what we were afraid was gonna happen. He's tiring out. He no longer can keep up with his acidosis. So, patient looks like an easy airway. He has a nice neck, he's not vomiting blood, he looks like he has a nice airway. But you should be very, very afraid of intubating him. I mean, really, I would love to not have to intubate this guy at all. I hate intubating profoundly acidotic patients. It's super scary, it's super dangerous, but he's kind of forcing us into it because he's already decompensating And if we just let it keep going like this, it's heading nowhere good, so he's forcing me into this. But you should be very concerned right now. Here's why. This is a graph looking at change in minute ventilation. And remember, your minute ventilation is your respiratory rate times your tidal volume. So change in minute ventilation compared to change in pH. So basically what it's saying is that if you increase your minute ventilation by X amount, then your pH will improve, meaning you'll become more alkalotic by X amount. Then, if you decrease your minute ventilation by X amount, your pH will go down. You'll become more acidotic. So this graph is showing us the relationship between how hard and how fast somebody's breathing and the change in pH. Now this graph has a very important feature. It's this inflection point right here. This inflection point is very important. Why? Well, look what happens when you're on one side versus the other of the inflection point. If you're to the left of the inflection point and you decrease your minute ventilation, you will get a drop in your pH, but not a lot, not a huge drop, but The minute you cross that inflection point, the minute, like, for example, when you make a patient apneic, like, for example, when you're about to intubate them and your minute ventilation goes down low enough that you've now crossed that inflection point, for the same decrease in minute ventilation, all of a sudden, you tank your pH. You drop it hard and fast. And this is why intubating these patients is scary. And it's not because this happens just to these patients. This is true of any patient you're intubating, right? You make them apneic, you drop their minute ventilation beyond that inflection point in the curve, and they do drop their pH rapidly and potentially quickly. However, if you're starting at a pH of 7.4, that's fine. I can drop my pH by like 0.2 and my patient's gonna basically be fine, but, if you are starting from a pH of 6.87 and I drop it by 0.2, I'm now down to 6.67, no longer compatible with life. My patient is going to code. So that's why intubating these guys is so scary because they will often code. They just have no room to drop their pH and you're making them apneic. Now, this also tells us the solution. To how you should approach intubating these patients, which is minimize apnea time. Normally, when I'm intubating a normal person, I'm not all that concerned with apnea time. I mean, I am to a point, but if they're starting with a fine pH, okay, you put the oxygen on them, they can actually be apneic for a while, you know, the internal take a look. No, 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 that's not. Okay, I'll sort of take a look. We'll get there eventually. I'm not that concerned with apnea time. In these patients, you must be very concerned with apnea time. You have no room to maneuver here. So you need to choose a strategy that minimizes apnea time. There's any number of ways to do this. And how you decide to go about doing this is gonna depend on what resources your institution has. It's gonna depend on what you're comfortable with. In the ICU, if I have a patient who's awake and alert, this is what I do. First, I put them on BiPAP. Why? Because my patient's still awake and alert. They're still breathing at 40. They're still trying really hard to keep up with their metabolic acidosis. They're just tiring out. Their diaphragm is like, I'm done with this. What BiPAP will do for you is help support their minute ventilation. It'll help them take nice deep breaths. And I'll put them on a setting of maybe start 15 over five, something like that. You want to maximize that delta P. We'll talk more about this in the BiPAP lecture. Then you just watch the BiPAP machine and you just go up on that IPAP on that top number until they're getting a good tidal volume, because this is going to help temporize. Now, does this mean I can just leave them on BiPAP and cross my fingers they won't need to be intubated? Probably not, right? I mean, in theory, once I fix the acidosis, then probably we're going to be fine, but it's going to take me a while to do that. That's not going to be immediate. So I'm not saying put them on BiPAP and call it a day. I'm saying we are going to do preventilation for intubation. We talk a lot about pre-oxygenation, and that's something we should all be doing, but in these patients, in your acidotic patients, pre-ventilation is also important if you can do it. So I'll start them on BiPAP to buy myself some time. The question of bicarb always comes up, and this is an interesting question because I'm basically saying it's dangerous to intubate this guy because they're so profoundly acidotic. So at the time that I'm like, okay, I'm putting him on BiPAP because we're in trouble, we're heading towards an intubation, a lot of people ask me, what's my threshold for bicarb? And that's not really an easy question. Um, This is all in adults, by the way. We're not talking about kids here. In kids, bad idea, don't do it. In adults, it's a little bit complicated. For me, this is a time that I will consider it. Not because I think that the bicarb's going to fix the DKA. It's not giving somebody sodium bicarb to fix an anion gap acidosis makes no sense. But if I'm saying, okay, I just need a little short period where I'm trying to temporize to transiently get my patient through an intubation. And I just need to keep the serum bicarb vaguely reasonable, just in this short period of time. It's not a crazy thing to do. However, Keep in mind the following. If you push an amp of bicarb, remember that equation we talked about? The equation that relates sodium bicarb and hydrogen, then it gets turned into CO2 and H2O? If you load one end of that equation, you give a big sodium bicarb load, you load that equation, what you're going to do is push that equation hard to the left, meaning... Your bicarb load is gonna turn into a CO2 load that now your patient has to blow off. And what did we just say about our patient? Well, now he also has a respiratory acidosis. So he's also having trouble blowing off his CO2. So giving an amp of bicarb as a push, you know, maybe you can get away with it when you're on BiPAP, but it's maybe not the best thing to do. What I will do sometimes instead, if I think I'm heading this direction, I'll start a bicarb drip, because then I'm not slamming into one side of that equation, I'll start a bicarb drip. I'll consider it if I think I'm getting in trouble. But again, to be clear, I'm not doing it because I think I'm magically fixing the DKA. This is just a temporizing measure, which may or may not work. I don't really have great evidence here and it may not be a good idea, but it's not an unreasonable thing to consider. Okay, I have my patient on BiPAP. I'm supporting their minute ventilation. I have my patient maybe on a little bicarb drip. Now what am I gonna do? If I'm in the ICU and I have fiber optic airway stuff available to me, what I would like to do is an awake fiber optic intubation. Because with that, I have all the time in the world. I mean, by definition, if it's an awake fiber optic, my patient's not gonna be apneic. That being said, in the ED, one, you may not have a fiber optic intubation, Kate, and two, you may not be comfortable with it. And now, not really the moment to learn how to do an awake fiber optic intubation. So if you don't have the materials or it's not something you're comfortable with, don't do that, do something you're comfortable with. Another strategy, if you do not have a fiber optic, but you have a video scope, what I will sometimes do is this, give them a bunch of ketamine, get them all nicely dissociated. Get ready a couple things. Get some Lido ready. Get Lido ready to topicalize them. Then, you give them the ketamine. Ketamine's a lovely thing. They keep breathing on their own. They're still breathing. You're getting all your stuff ready to intubate them. Then, topicalize them. Because remember, the whole point of ketamine is that you're maintaining your airway reflexes, right? So when you're going to try and intubate them, they're going to maintain those reflexes and try and gag and cough at you. So, topicalize them. Then, take a look with your video scope. If you see the cords and you're ready to go, fabulous. If you're like, oh, what's going on there? This is not good, you're okay. Put them back on BiPAP and come up with plan B. What you don't wanna be doing is, well, attempt number one, oh, no, we can't, okay, let's reposition attempt number two, in the meantime, the patient's apneic and apneic and apneic, and then they code. If you're in that situation, I mean, bag between attempts, do what you can, but a better thing is ketamine, keep breathing, lidocaine, take a look with your videoscope, and then you see the cords. You know you can pass that tube, then pass the tube. Now, I still like to paralyze because I don't want to damage the cords. So this is the one time that I will sometimes use sucks rather than rock. I generally am a rock fan, we can have that whole debate later. In this particular situation, SUCKS can be a good tool. One, you're not really worried about their potassium. If it increases their potassium, strong work, wonderful. But two, what I'm gonna try and do here is say, okay, I see the cords, patient's still breathing, they're not apneic, I wanna quickly paralyze then pass my tube, boom, done. SUCKS will do that for me. So I'm sitting here, I haven't paralyzed yet, I'm looking at those cords, I have the ET tube in my other hand, I have it ready to go, push some sucks, acts real fast, pass the tube, and done. Very minimal apnea time. Now again, is that the only way to do this? No. But the principle is, minimize apnea time in whatever way you can. Those are just two different strategies I've used in the past. You can come up with your own, as long as you stick to the principle. Okay, patient, intubated, not dead, high five, wonderful thing, but your problems are not over. So right after you intubate the patient, you get called away to a critical code trauma. You put in some chest tubes, do some fun stuff, but then an hour later, as you're leaving the trauma, the nurse calls you with an emergency lab value. Your pH is now 6.79. What happened? Because this one's our fault. What probably happened is that you did the thing that people always do but you should never do, which was, you intubate somebody, everybody gives high fives, then walks away from the bedside, without discussing the vent settings with the respiratory therapist? That's probably what happened. And indeed, it is. These are the vent settings that the patient was placed on. Which one of these vent settings is problematic? Yes, it's the respiratory rate, right? Your patient was breathing at 45 times a minute, and then we just put him on a respiratory rate of 16. Why was the patient breathing at 45? To compensate for the metabolic acidosis. Have we fixed the metabolic acidosis? No, we haven't yet. So we just decompensated the patient. And this is an important thing. In critical care, sometimes, Your patient is so sick, their physiology is so deranged, that you just have to really take control of their physiology. And that's okay. Don't be afraid to do that. But if you are going to take on that responsibility and take over your patient's physiology like this, you have to be responsible and vigilant and very thoughtful and know what you're doing. Because if not, this kind of thing happens. So here's the deal when you intubate a severely acidotic patient. You gotta set their vent settings to maximize your minute ventilation. Now, part of that you can do with tidal volume. Normally, I like to set a tidal volume closer to six cc's per kilo, not right now. This is not the moment for it. Now I'm going for higher tidal volumes. I'm going for eight if I need to higher. And part of why I'm okay doing that is they're not gonna be on super high tidal volumes forever, right? We are gonna fix the acidosis, Just not in the next five minutes. So to transiently have them on a higher tidal volume, I can live with that. But the respiratory rate, you also have to optimize that. 16, clearly not enough. Now, why is it that I can't just say to the RT, all right, they were breathing at 45, put them on the vent at 45 and call it a day. Don't do that. If you do that, what would happen? What would happen if you set the vent at a rate of 45, bad things would happen. The patient would start breath stacking. Here's why. There's a reason that if I'm just standing here breathing spontaneously, I can breathe at a rate of 45, but on a vent, you don't wanna do that. The first one is very simple. When you're breathing spontaneously, you have active exhalation, right? You're going, you're actively forcing the air out. You're not doing that anymore on a vent. Remember, this patient is sedated and paralyzed. They're not actively exhaling. Even if they were, they're actively exhaling against positive pressure. It's complicated, but that's one thing. Thing two, though, there's another problem. Do you remember the equation that relates the radius of a tube to flow through the tube? It's kind of an important one in critical care. It's the one that tells you that there is an R to the fourth power relationship between the rate of flow and the radius, which means even a small change, even a small decrease in the radius can dramatically drop your flow. What did we just do to the patient? Well, we now have them breathing through a straw. We now just dramatically decrease the radius of what they're breathing through that's gonna drop the flow. Now, this isn't a big deal. On the inspiratory phase, when you're pushing the positive pressure through the tube, that's okay. But what it means is they need some more time for exhalation because the expiratory flow is gonna be slower because you dropped that radius. And so if you try and set that rate too fast, what's gonna happen is they're going to have another breath that goes in before they've completely exhaled the last one. And that is called breath stacking, And that will get you in trouble. So the max rate I'll set on a ventilator, maybe 30, depending. You just have to stand at the vent. Everybody's lungs are different and adjust the rate until you find a good rate for them that's as high as you can push it, but they're also not breath stacking. We'll talk about this more when we get to the vent section. The bottom line is We have just put the patient in a position where they can no longer compensate for themselves, so now we have to do it for them. Do not forget, high minute ventilation once you intubate these patients.